This morning we'll be looking at a text from Ephesians 4, there's just one verse, that of verse 25, for a bit of context, and we also want to read from James chapter 3. So we'll begin Scripture reading with the passage from James 3. If you're using your pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,387. And then our text for this morning will be from Ephesians 4, verse 25. And in your pew Bible, that's on page 1,346. So we read first from the inspired Word of God as it's found in James chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus far for now, our reading from that passage, we then turn to the words of our text for this morning from Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by way of introduction, uh, cadets, uh, young boys and young men. Uh, young men are a special opportunity in life to develop your strength and your ability. Uh, this week we've seen some of your ability. and You have the ability to, to form and fashion different projects, to work with tools, uh, to create things. 
Also, as young men, you have developing strength. You're getting stronger and stronger. You're getting faster and faster. But I would remind you and I would remind all of us that the most powerful part of our person is perhaps our tongue. Sure, with strong biceps, you can lift and do curls. And sure, with strong legs, you can run fast and jump high. With strong backs, uh, you can build many, many a thing. But the tongue, the tongue is more powerful than the biceps, than the quadriceps, than the back muscles. The tongue has the ability to build up, but it also has the ability to tear down. The words that have been spoken by persons have either served to the edifying of the church or have served to the division of the church. And James makes this clear. He reflects upon the abilities of mankind to harness even the beast of the animal realm. My wife showed me a picture this week of a horse weighs in, according to the, the picture, at 2,500 pounds. Over one ton this horse weighed. And it's led by a small bit placed in its mouth. But the tongue, who can harness the tongue? Who can control the tongue? Not man by himself, not a human person by him or herself. And, and this warns us as we begin to move through these exhortations in the closing chapters of Ephesians. This warns us about the danger of some type of moralism, some type of understanding that we come here and we read these verses and then we leave and say, well, if I only try harder to control my tongue, maybe perhaps I can do better with my speech. That's not the answer. Because you and I, in and of ourselves, we cannot control our tongues. So it's not moralism, nor is it legalism, that if we learn how to speak correctly from an ethical standpoint, that then we will become members of the kingdom of God. Now we need to be careful to avoid moralism and to avoid legalism. Every text of Scripture speaks about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, but some texts of Scripture speak more specifically about the fruit that comes from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that theological reality that we call sanctification. And the Apostle Paul is going to lead us step by step, verse by verse, command by command, into the fruit of the cross, sanctification. And as these exhortations are given, and as sermons are given uh, upon some very difficult matters in the future weeks in regards to these texts, our desire is that the transformative grace of God would bless the preaching of the Word to change us, to change us internally so that then we are also changed externally. Uh, we spoke last week uh, about this whole concept of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, about throwing out the soiled, filthy garments 
uh, that stink of sin and of iniquity, and and of putting on the, the new garments of righteousness and of holiness. And now, so to speak, the author of the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, is going to identify certain particular items of clothing that need to be discarded. So he's moving from the general, put off the old man, and put on the new man, and he's moving to the very specific, put off lying and put on speaking truth. And so we want to consider that this morning. And you'll notice that it's really an exposition of the ninth commandment to not bear false witness against our neighbor. We want to look at this theme, a call to a specific life of conversion, death to lying. Well, notice, first of all, the action in death to lying, and then secondly, the contrast in death to lying, and then thirdly, the ground for death to lying. So through the Word of God, God Himself is calling you and me, calling us as a congregation, to sanctification, to transformation, to put off one manner of life and to put on another manner of life. Specifically speaking, God is calling for you and for me to put off lying, and in its place put on the speaking of truth. Now, notice the action, first of all, then, as it is grammatically described and then practically applied. Putting away. Putting away means to be done with something, to discard something, to rid oneself of a certain specific sinful conduct. Uh, More specifically, you might say, this is a call to a life of continual mortification. Mortification is this concept of of dying. Continually, you and I need to die to our sinful practices and sinful tendencies and sinful habits and inclinations. Just a reminder that the Bible does not teach perfectionism in the sense that we somehow in this life attain a level of perfect sinfulness. So myself included, if anyone who hears these words kind of just checks out this morning and says, ah, this doesn't really apply to me, the Bible comes and says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But when the truth of the Word of God resides within our heart, it will reveal the fact that there is this need for an ongoing life of sanctification, including the aspect of mortification. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks to this in question and answer 89. What is the mortification of the old man? It is heartfelt sorrow that we have provoked God by our sins, and more and more to hate them. Notice the continual, but also the progression in this mortification. More and more and more. As I am underneath the ministry of the Word of God, as I am underneath the means of grace, more and more and more I come to see my own sin and I come to hate my own sin. And I fear that there is a danger for especially conservative churches to see the sin of the world more and more and more, to see the sin of those outside of our bounds more and more and more, uh, but to become so focused upon the sins that are out there that we fail to realize that sin is in here. Sin resides within my own soul. But underneath the process of sanctification, underneath the process of mortification, more and more and more we come 
to hate our sin, and to flee from it. This includes the sin that is connected to our tongue. Now, not the, the physical element of our body, but rather the speech that comes forth from our, our tongue. And, of course, our vocal cords and our lungs, etc. The tongue is taken to represent the faculty of speech. Unless there is uh, some defect human beings have the ability to communicate with intelligible speech, one of the most powerful abilities that we have. And in our capacity for intelligible speech, we reflect the very image of God Himself. And so just note that your capacity to speak is one of the most powerful capacities that you have. The words that come forth from your mouth Go forth with power. But there is a natural inclination as a result of our fall that the words that go forth from our mouth are words that go forth to destruction. This is part of what it means when we speak of total depravity, of a pervasive depravity. Because out of the heart the mouth speaks. And the heart, by nature, apart from God's grace, is deceitful and is wicked. And so by nature, apart from God's transformative grace, the words that come forth from our mouth far too often include every kind of deceit, hypocrisy, or cunning speech. Speech that purposefully communicates falsehood. And this whole category... Uh, of lying speech is summarized again by our Harderberg Catechism in question 112. What is God's will for us in the ninth commandment? That commandment that says, you shall not bear false witness. That commandment that includes lying uh, and any type of corrupt speech. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone. That I never give false testimony against anyone. That I never purposely misrepresent reality whether it be through cunning, sleight-of-hand speech, whether it be through even the various tones of our speech that we would somehow mischaracterize a person's being or a person's speech. The catechism continues that I twist no one's words. We can become very skillful at twisting words when we take them out of context. When we perhaps leave part of what someone said out of what we communicate to someone else. The catechism continues, that I not gossip or slander. Just a word in passing, it's not a quote original, original with me, but just remind yourself that the person who gossips to you is almost always a person who also gossips about you. And gossip, I would submit to you, is a cancer that also exists, sadly, many times in the church. And sometimes it's packaged underneath some false spiritual premise, well, I need to know so that I can pray knowledgeably. Or it's true, so it's not gossip. Just because something is true doesn't mean that it can't be packaged in a way 
that is slanderous gossip if the intent in communicating it is to do my neighbor harm. Included also in our catechism is that God's will is that I not join in condemning anyone without a hearing. On the authority of Scripture, I tell you that it is the absolute height of arrogant folly to function as judge, jury, and executioner upon a person without ever hearing from that person. To just simply hear some slanderous bit of gossip and to immediately go to the function of conducting an internal trial and say, I know that that person is guilty, is the height of arrogant folly. And God's will is that we would never join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Well, why do these types of speech need to die by way of practical application? And the point that I'm trying to do here is to show us the heinousness of these sinful patterns of speech. First of all, lying is always diabolical. Lying speech, purposefully misrepresenting reality, purposefully slandering, gossiping, purposefully condemning someone without a hearing and without a cause, purposely giving false testimony, never reflects the image of God who is truth, but always reflects Satan himself, who Jesus Christ says in John 8 verse 44, is the father of lies. So if we lie with our speech, we are not reflecting, we are not imitating We are not imaging our Father in heaven, but rather we are reflecting, we are imitating, we are imaging the diabolical speech of our great adversary, Satan, who from the very beginning entered into the realm of God's creation with a lie. And his lie was this, you will not surely die. He knowingly misrepresented the truth. And in doing so, he attacked. He attacked humanity. He attacked Adam. He attacked Eve. And by his lie, he brought death. And that's also a point uh, that we must emphasize. Lying speech brings death. Uh, Here I would ask you, if you've kept your Bible open this morning, to turn over to one passage, Revelation 21, verse 8. Uh, Here it's made very, very clear. There's this wonderful picture that John sees of the new heaven and the new earth in verses 1 through 7. But then in verse 8, you'll notice that there is a list uh, of persons who will not enter into that new heaven and that new earth, but who will rather have their place uh, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And notice the description of those who will enter into that lake, those who habitually, without repentance, walk as cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. And we might say, yes, we agree with that. We agree that, you know, those heinous sins of sexual immorality have no part in the new heaven and the new earth. We might agree and say, yes, certainly murderers who do not repent, we understand that they will have no part in the new heaven and the new earth. But also included are liars. All liars. All who walk in a habitual pattern of life by which they knowingly misrepresent the truth by bearing false witness, by engaging in slanderous gossip, 
by condemning other individuals unheard, will not enter into the new heaven and the new earth, but shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now imagine for a moment, and I hope that none of you have ever experienced this, there was a man in my former congregation that had a tragic accident. Uh, He was attempting to start an an old John Deere tractor, uh, and gasoline had sprayed upon him as he tried to start this old John Deere tractor, and he didn't take the garments off that were doused with gasoline. He continued to try to start the tractor. And as the spark plug sparked, it ignited his clothing. Now imagine for a moment that you find yourself in that situation. What would you do with your shirt if it was on fire? Wouldn't you try as quickly as you possibly could to get that shirt off of you? You wouldn't look down and say, oh, but I really like this shirt. It's my favorite shirt. My wife gave it to me. I think I'm going to continue to wear it. You wouldn't say, oh, I think the fire will burn out eventually. I don't think it's that serious. You would do everything within your power to get that shirt that was on fire from off of your body. A lying tongue is a fire that needs to be put off by the grace of God. And in contrast, in our second point, something else needs to be put on. And we want to look at the contrast in death to lying by noticing the duty and then the object. And here again, if you just flip back to the words of our text, you'll notice uh, the parallelism, the antithetical parallelism, putting away lying, and notice that that's active, continual exercise, and then having putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So it's not as if we just go through life not saying anything. You know, there were in the history of the church those, uh, they were first called stylites, and and they just tried to completely remove themselves from society. One of them, Simon the Stylite, he he lived on top of a massive pillar. I think it was 60 or 70 feet up in the air, and it had a a, a 3 by 3 or a 4 by 4 foot platform. And he just went up there, and he just spent the rest of his life up there. Well, we could say, well, we'll put off lying by just going and living in absolute isolation. But yet God has given us the capacity of speech. And so it's not that He just wants us to never talk and to never communicate, but He wants us, His will for us, His desire is that we would speak truth. But what exactly is truth? And this is the question that especially our postmodern world is struggling with because they have subjectivized truth. And it's not just our postmodern world. This is also the question that Pilate wrestled with. What is truth? Well, we could say uh, from a variety of angles that God is truth, His Word is truth. But when it comes to our speech, what is true is that which is in accordance with reality. That which seeks to properly, accurately, fairly communicate reality. And to do so with the proper motivation. To do so out of love. 
And here I want to cross-reference you, and again, I know that you're familiar with this passage, but just to read it again and to see it again, to see there the description of love as we have it in 1 Corinthians 13. And this would apply then also to the positive speech that our Lord would have us to, to engage in. So the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And so if there's love that's absent, the words that come out of our mouth are nothing more than an annoying sound that has no real purpose. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, you could perhaps be the premier theologian in your own estimation, having far surpassed everyone else in your comprehension of God. But if you have not love, what does it profit? I am nothing. And although I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love, and also then the speech that flows out of love, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so the speech that our Lord would have us be engaged in is speech that communicates the reality that is but also that communicates that reality with love and all of its accompanying characteristics as described in passages such as 1 Corinthians 13. And so, and I understand it's not practical to filter every single word that comes out of your mouth, but the principle is this, what you say, what you communicate it ought to be able to meet the criteria that's listed there in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, maybe some of you boys and girls, maybe your mothers say the same thing to you that my mother used to say to me and my siblings. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Now, you maybe want to adjust the word nice, and you could say, if you can't say anything out of love, then don't say it. Now, sometimes speaking in love includes admonishments, corrections, even rebukes. But if you're not speaking out of love, then you shouldn't be speaking. Put away lying and let every one of us, going back to the text, speak truth with his neighbor my neighbor. And, and this has always been a perplexing question all the way back to the days of Jesus Christ himself. Who is my neighbor? Very simply put, your neighbor is the fellow man or the fellow woman, the fellow boy, the fellow girl that God in his providence has put next to you in your life, in your own home, in your own family, And so by way of a point of application, how do you speak in your own household? 
How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your parents? How do you speak to your extended relatives? There's always the danger of a pharisaical facade. Oh, yes, we come into church, and then we speak very cautiously, very lovingly, but then in our most intimate of relationships, we lie to one another. We slander one another. We twist one another's words. And what does James say? My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Freshwater fountains, they bring forth fresh water. You don't go to the kitchen faucet and turn it on one day and get fresh water and turn it on the next day and get salt water. And, and same thing whether it, it be fig leaves or fig trees, as James mentioned. But for our purposes, we could say, you don't plant corn and expect to harvest soybeans. What comes forth from our mouths? Not only in our most intimate relationships within our homes, but also within the church. How do we speak about one another? And how do we speak to one another? Are we guilty at times of misrepresenting one another? Of misrepresenting what a person says, what a person believes, what a person has communicated? Do we sometimes speak about someone without giving them a fair and honest hearing? Without seeking at least to understand what they are communicating? My grandfather, I often reference my paternal grandfather. This time I reference my maternal grandfather. He would often remind us grandkids that the Lord gave us two ears and one mouth so that we would be doubly quick to listen before we spoke. Are you careful to listen before you speak? Within the church especially, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. But why? Notice the ground in our third point, very simply stated, for we are members of one another. And the Apostle Paul, and we have to be careful that we don't continue to repeat ourselves of what he has said in the earlier part of this epistle, but the Apostle Paul has laid out the doctrine, the reality that there is one body being united to one Christ. There is one salvation. There is one church. There is a unity. There is a unity, and therefore there ought to be a unity, just as the human body is one unit. Yes, made up of different members, so to speak, different parts, but there is one body. And for the body to properly function as it is designed, all of the parts need to work in harmony. And you can think of this in its theological explanation. There is one work of redemption because there is one Redeemer. 
And there is then this one body of Christ that is indwelt by one spirit of Christ. Just to look back at Ephesians 4, verse 3 and verse 4, you'll notice there the Apostle Paul gave this exhortation, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling. And so if you take a group of individual Christians, their basic Unity is that they are in Christ, having been redeemed, having been saved, having been justified and also sanctified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when we look next to each other in our pews or behind us or in front of us, and we see there that that person has also been saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that person also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, if I may say this with utmost reverence, the Spirit is not bipolar. The Spirit does not fight against Himself. And so if you take two individuals who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and if the Spirit produces love and also love in communication, then Paul's argument is you are one body. Therefore, don't misrepresent one another. Don't gossip about one another. Don't slander one another. I mean, if everything is right and ordinary and normal in your human body, your left hand doesn't punch you in the side of the head. Your right hand doesn't grab your left arm and twist it behind your back. I suppose, if I may give a personal example. As you know, I've had a couple of pretty intense massive seizures where the body exercises uncontrollable action, but that's not normal. When you have such a thing, you know what they do? They take you to the emergency room. They call for the ambulance, and then they do all sorts of tests to try to figure out, why is the body acting this way? And yet, when it comes to slanderous gossip in Christian relationships, we go, well, that's just our old nature. That's just the way I am. That's just my personality. I'm just a straight shooter. I just tell it like it is. Well, if you're straight shooting and telling it like it is, is gossip and slander, there's something wrong. Put away lying. Speak truth. We are one body. And our words ought to be carefully, carefully evaluated because they have power. They have power to either build up or they have power to tear down. There have been a variety of of examples in my own personal life recently, not connected to the life of this congregation, where an individual would just simply give one word of encouragement to another person, and you could see the visible impact immediately on the person receiving that word of encouragement. As their very eyes became lighter, their facial expression changed, 
the power of one word, positively spoken in love. It's a mighty, mighty work. Also one word of unwarranted, bitter criticism can destroy a person's spirit. I've seen it with my own eyes. One outburst can devastate a person's spirit who receives those words of outburst. One misrepresentation of a person can spoil a perception that someone else has for that person forever. And again, this is not in connection with anyone in this congregation, but I can tell you that there have been people who have come to me and have said, you know what's true about that person? And and, and they'll say something about that person, and, and I have no idea if it's true or not, but every time I now look at that person that they reference to, it's there in the back of my mind. Person A said this about person B. I don't know if it's true or not, but every time I look at person B, I remember what person A said about him. Be very, very careful. I say this with earnest pastoral love. Be very, very, very careful to put away lying and to speak the truth. For we are one body. Amen.